Open up to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We are finishing our sermon series through Daniel today. I kind of can't believe it. It's happened already. I want to start by thinking about Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Now, I've shared this a couple times in a few different sermons I've preached uh, in the Daniel series. But in Matthew chapter 24, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave a sermon on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just outside Jerusalem on the east side looking into Jerusalem. And Matthew 24 is this fascinating sermon Jesus gives where many people who read it feel like he is describing the end of the world. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. It's, it's full of all types of uh, just crazy scenes of, you know, it, it makes you think of like meteors coming and like wars and that kind of thing, like heading towards Armageddon. Matthew chapter 24 begins this way. It says, Jesus left the temple, that's in Jerusalem, and was going away with his disciples. He came to a point, he came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So he points to the buildings of the temple. And he says, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Speaking of the temple. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, Jesus then goes on, and he begins to tell them, there's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be rumors of wars. Matthew 24 is a pretty intense chapter. Then in verse 15 to 16, he says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation, remember that phrase. It's in our Daniel passage, okay? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now what is the abomination of desolation that comes right before the end of the age? Well, we're going to cover that today. But listen to what he says at the very end of that sermon. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Now what does that mean? Now many people who read Matthew 24, they read Matthew 24 and they say, what could Jesus possibly have meant by this generation will not pass away? Because he speaks of, it sounds like, the end of the world. And yet one generation is typically about 40 years. Now, I think Kenson has, Kenson has done a wonderful job in a number of sermons pointing out that there is an, a bit of an already not yet component to a lot of prophecy in the sense of some prophecy has an element that's already been fulfilled in some way and yet maybe has reverberations in our future that may come to play at some point in the future. But what if Matthew chapter 24 and that end of the age and the abomination that causes desolation is not necessarily something that's only in the future. What if it really did happen within one generation of Jesus' day, just as he said it would? Now, keep that thought there as we keep going. We've studied in the book of Daniel for a number of months now. And the book of Daniel has been a fascinating journey through an Old Testament prophet. And we've seen all different types of prophecy throughout these chapters. And, and it's our last day today. We're wrapping this thing up. My prayer for you, my hope for you, and the question I kind of want you to ask this morning is, have I been changed by my study of the book of Daniel? That, sh that should be the number one thing you're asking. Not have I learned a little bit more about a book of the Bible that maybe I hadn't studied that much. That's good and wonderful. We all should have that. But is your life different? 
See, true Bible study always changes your life. You, you leave with your affections changed. You leave with a conviction of sin that something about your life has to change when you leave this place. And so this is kind of a summary day. As you look back on your study of the book of Daniel, don't let this pass. Has Daniel changed you? You came in here a few months ago, one person. Are you different because of Daniel? If not, <clears throat> perhaps tonight, or tonight, not today, not tonight, today, as we get our last study in Daniel, the Lord might do that work. Let's review a little bit some big themes that we've seen through Daniel, okay? Let's just cover what are the big moving kind of pieces that we've studied. I think there's three core themes that have come up over and over again through our study of Daniel. Number one, we've talked about life as an exile in Babylon, Life as an exile in Babylon. Where have we seen this? Well, Daniel, the, the story as a whole. Who is Daniel? He was a young kid, probably 14 years old, who was living in Jerusalem when Babylon attacked. And he got taken as an exile away from his homeland where he wanted to be in Israel and had to live among a pagan culture who worshiped pagan gods, who, who did pagan stuff in their culture. And he had to live faithfully to his God in the midst of that culture. And what we've said is that Daniel's a great case study for us. Because just like Daniel, in a sense, we are also exiles as modern day Christians. First Peter chapter two, verse 11 in the New Testament says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And what's Peter getting at here? He's saying, look, you're, you're kind of like Daniel. He was an exile living in Babylon, and you're kind of like an exile. Why? Because your true home is not here. The place you were most made for, the thing that most resonates with your soul as a follower of Christ is that day when you march into heaven and Jesus grants you in, gives you a big hug, however that works when you enter into heaven, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and that will be your true home. Heaven on earth here, but with no sin, with no brokenness. But as we live in this life in the midst of brokenness, we live as exiles. And Daniel, we kind of pick up our marching orders from Daniel of how to do this well. We saw boldness, didn't we? D Daniel had boldness that he would not waver when it came to dedication and devotion to his God. Even when all the pressure from culture was coming in on him saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> just water down the message a little bit, Daniel. Just don't do it quite that, you know, that, with that much zeal, Daniel. What we saw with Daniel was he was willing to go to the lion's den to worship his God properly. And we take a lot of courage away from that. The second major theme we've seen is God's control over history, okay? So if you're thinking about Daniel, right, how to live as an exile, theme number one. Theme number two, God's control over history. And where have we seen this? Well, we've seen this in some of the earlier prophetic passages of Daniel where, where God, speaking to Daniel hundreds of years before the events, gave visions of all the world empires that would come and go throughout history, Right? And he, the first vision was to actually to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar had that vision of the statue, do you remember that message? He had with four different parts that showed, okay, first it's going to be the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, then the Roman Empire. And, and God gave these visions well before any of those empires came. Now, what does that mean for us? The same God that was over Daniel is over us. The same God that saw and, and dictated that certain empires would rise and fall on certain dates with certain leaders over them, that same God is over the rise and fall of empires today. That's an incredible thought. If you let that sink in a little bit, 
God has not changed. Now, this should do two things to you. Number one, it should ground you. What does that mean? It means that when we see world events taking shape and great evil rising up and then different empires coming up and and nations being attacked, the Christian kind of has a unique perspective on this that even though it's intense, things are not out of God's control. And that grounds you. But number two, that doesn't mean that you just stay uninvolved and impassionate about the whole thing, right? What did we see Daniel doing in the midst of evil rising and falling? Fervently praying. And and then we saw God responding to his prayers and actually shaping world history as a result of the authority that had been given Daniel to pray and to release angels to change world history. And so having an understanding that God's over nations and the rise and fall of nations, it grounds us But it doesn't leave us on the sideline just saying, well, look, God's going to be God, so what can we do about it? It actually empowers you to step into the world and the history that's being written while you're up. Third theme, the inauguration of the messianic kingdom. Now, if you leave Daniel and you don't pick this up, you're going to miss Daniel. The inauguration of the messianic kingdom. We saw this repeatedly over and over that while God was kind of laying this vision, here are the empires that are going to come and and here's the order they're going to come in. Each time when it got to that fourth empire, the Roman empire, right in the midst of that empire was going to come a messianic kingdom that was going to grow over the entire world. We saw that at least twice. In fact, a handful of times beyond that. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom that's been established, that that prophecy was about, was Jesus' kingdom. And it came at the exact time when Daniel said it would come, writing hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Daniel said, in the midst of the fourth empire, that's the Roman Empire, in the midst of that, a Messiah will come and establish a kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. And you and I are living in the midst of the outgrowth of the messianic kingdom. It was inaugurated in the life of Jesus, and we're living in the fulfillment of it now. So when you read Daniel, and you're wondering, what is this about? He was writing about the day you're living in. He was dreaming about what it might be like to be in the messianic kingdom with all the power that he had as a prophet writing the very words of God, he was looking forward to what you and I oftentimes take for granted. Right? And we, and we go in and out and we forget the reality that the messianic kingdom has begun and we're living in the outgrowth of it. Okay, those are the, the big themes. And I think some of those themes are gonna come to life in this last chapter. So, with no further ado, let's read chapter 12 together. It's a bit of a shorter chapter. Let's read the whole thing. Daniel chapter 12, if you recall from last week, Kenson preached on Daniel 11. Actually, Daniel 11 and 12 are one prophetic message that all go together, okay? So you're gonna have to try to remember some of what Kenson talked about last week. Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. We'll come back to that language, time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, that means those who make disciples, who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, you might recall we talked about the man clothed in linen a few weeks ago, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. How long shall it be until the end of all these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for, here we go, a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Now, like most in this room at this point, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Okay, so if you're reading all this and you're saying, I don't get it so far, Daniel thought that first, okay? I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? In other words, God, just make this really simple for me. Please explain this. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act, violent, or shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate, do you remember Jesus used that phrase? When the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there should be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Whew, okay. What I'm going to try to do is I'm going to answer three major questions about this last chapter of Daniel that I think if we can answer those three questions and leave here saying, I think I get it, you'll understand what we just read. Question number one, what is the time of trouble mentioned in verse one? Let me read to you that phrase again. At that time, Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation on that, uh, since that time. And then throughout all Daniel chapter 12, we hear about that trouble, right? It's going to get really intense. And then Daniel's kind of asking questions. What's going to be the outcome of this time of trouble? Now, if you've been following the sermon series, you will remember, and I've mentioned this already, there's a bit of debate about how you interpret prophecy. Some people lean into what is called the preterist view. The preterist view is that a lot of the prophecies we read in the Old Testament primarily have already been fulfilled in our history, meaning the prophet who wrote them was looking into his future and saying, this will happen, but we're standing thousands of years in the future and they're already in our past. That's the preterist view. Others take what's called the futurist view, and they read prophecies like this about an abomination of desolation, and they say, well... It doesn't seem like these things have happened even in our history. Therefore, they must be in the future some point. And so they're futurists. They're saying all of this is one day coming down the pipeline for us. Now, I think what Kenton and I have tried to say regularly is that we feel and we believe that humbly, probably the best interpretation of this is a strong preterist view 
meaning many of these things have already been fulfilled in our past. And that's very encouraging, actually, for us. That doesn't mean that there might not be some futurist bend to it, some not yet fulfilled areas to it. Now, what does this mean? Verse 1. Let's look at what we see. Verse 1 suggests that this time of trouble will be a terrible time for the Jewish people. That's what verse 1 says. It'll be a terrible time for the Jewish people. Verse 2 suggests that God will deliver Daniel's people through it. Meaning, in the midst of the time of trouble, some will be delivered through it. Specifically, those whose name is written in the book. We also know that in the New Testament as the book of life. If you're a follower of Christ, your name is written in the book of life. God has a registry with your name in it, and it can't be erased, written with the blood of Christ. That's called the book of life. Talk about being encouraged, okay? Those who, whose name would be written in the book would be delivered through this terrible judgment day. Verse 7 suggests that the judgment would last three and a half years. Now, where do I get that? Remember when we highlighted in verse 7 when it said, a time, times, and half a time? Now, what does that mean? That's Bible speak for three and a half years. A time is one year. Times, plural, is two years. So a time and times is three years. And then half a time, that's three and a half years. So it seems like whatever this event is, it will last three and a half years. And then verse 11 suggests that there, will, there would be signs that God would give the Jewish people that would indicate the time of trouble was very fast approaching. Specifically, two signs. Number one, in verse 11, we see that the regular burnt offering would be taken away. Remember, in the temple in Jerusalem, during the days of Jesus, uh, sacrifices were being made every day. And then secondly, that the abomination that makes desolate would be set up. And that's kind of, we have to figure out what that is. Now, the futurist view. Let's, let's take the camp of the futurist view for a second. The futurist, the person who says, okay, this has not happened yet. It's all going to happen in our future. What they tend to say is, maybe they even look at modern day events. And they see the amount of pressure that Israel is under in the Middle East right now. And they are, are under a lot of pressure. And they see the amount of anti-Semitism that is in the world today. And there is a lot of anti-Semitism in the world today. And they hear of wars and rumors of wars. And they look at the situation right now and they say, look, probably what's going to happen is that Jerusalem's going to be surrounded, but we know the sacrifice, because this prophecy said the sacrifice in the temple has to be going again, because it has to come to an end. So what they're hoping for is that one day the temple will be rebuilt. You probably have heard this, okay? The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Sacrifices will get being going again. And then once that happens, the, an antichrist figure will come and set up a false god in the temple. That's called the futurist view. And humbly, I would say, to be honest, there is a strong Zionist movement today for Jews moving back to Israel. And there is a strong movement with a very well-funded backing to rebuild the temple. That is happening right now. And if that is the way this all plays out, I'd say, you know, I could see that happening. That's a futurist view. However, I actually think the preterist view is the better take on this. The preterist view says that rather than looking to our future for those things to happen, those things already happened back in the day of Jesus. It all happened exactly as Daniel said it would. And what's important for us as modern day Christians is that we recognize how significant of an event it was when this all happened because it has implications for ourselves. The preterist view believes that this time of trouble in Daniel 12 happened in the year 70 AD, 
40 years after the life and death of Jesus. Jesus died around 32 AD. And in 70 AD, the Roman armies under General Titus encircled the temple, waged a three and a half year war, just like Daniel said, waged a three and a half year war that was devastating over Jerusalem and then culminated in 70 AD with the utter destruction of the temple and the final end of the entire sacrificial system. That all happened. It was a terrible event. Terrible tragedies occurred. Historians talk about the blood flowing in streams out of the city when it took place. Revelation chapter 11 verse 2 talks about this. It says, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. It's three and a half years. Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 says, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Well, the beast was... General Titus and his crew who waged war on Jerusalem and were persecuting anyone who tried to fight against them at the time. All right, so what am I saying? I believe those three and a half years in that time of trouble was in 70 AD when the Lord brought about the final cataclysmic end to the Jewish sacrificial system by ending the temple. You can walk through the ruins today in Jerusalem. Some of you have made Jerusalem trips and you've seen the Wailing Wall and you've seen the ruins that are there today. I was reading in a, a Jewish history this week. Let me read to you from a Jewish historical perspective of what that day was like. This is putting some ancient historians together. <clears throat> they say this, quote, The Romans, when they attacked Jerusalem, brought idols into the temple and offered sacrifices to it. Okay? This is the abomination of desolation. They're bringing a false god into the temple itself and worshiping it. The Romans brought idols into the temple and offered sacrifices to it. They took the golden vessels of the temple and killed everyone they found before the fire consumed the temple completely. Titus, that's the Roman general, entered the Holy of Holies, okay? The Holy of Holies and performed the most despicable acts. The still surviving Jews in the upper city could only watch as the temple burned down to the foundations. It burned well into the next day. Here's what's interesting. You know who survived? The Jews who, who had accepted Jesus. Do you know why they survived? Because Jesus had said, when you see these things taking place, flee for the hills. And it's recorded in history that the Messianic Jews of that day, the Jews who accepted Jesus and knew that the, sacri the, the sacrificial system was not needed anymore because Jesus had already done away with all the sacrifices because he was the perfect lamb that was slain, they fled for the hills when the Roman armies came around Jerusalem. That's history. It played out exactly as Jesus said it would and exactly as Daniel said it would. Now, let me, that's a fascinating historical thing. But, but how does that change our worship? How, how does that change you as a Christian? I, I think it has significance. The, all through the Old Testament, the, the Jewish sacrificial system and the temple and the Holy of Holies, that was put in place so that sinful humanity could be in relationship with a holy God. See, see, we water down God to such a degree that we think it's totally normal for sinful people to be in relationship with the holy God. That's a normal thing. We can just talk to him whenever we want. No issue, no concern. We can talk to him like a friend. Not an issue there. But that's not the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible is sovereign, supreme, sustains the universe by the word of his power. And we are sinful. Our our greatest deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord, says the scriptures. So how can a sinful people be in relationship with a holy God? That can't happen. It's impossible. And so in the Old Testament, what happened was a Jewish sacrificial system was made and blood had to be spilled every day and every year over and over again. And it was the only way that sinful people could in any way relate to a holy God. It was necessary. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's Leviticus. But then comes Jesus. And Jesus becomes the final lamb that was slain, the final blood that was shed, fulfilling every sacrifice that would ever be needed for once and for all, doing away with the whole thing. So no more do we need a temple where sacrifices are being made. No more is there a holy of holies where only the high priest can go once a year, but everyone else has to stay away from it for fear that you might die if you get too close to the holiness of God. Why? Because when Jesus died, what happened? That curtain that separates it was torn in two. From top to bottom, and there was a thick curtain, really tall, torn in two, and it was a significant moment that said the Holy of Holies, because of Jesus' death on the cross, is now open to anyone who will put their faith in Christ. And that moment in 70 AD was God coming down and putting a final end to the sacrificial system, just as Jesus said he would because it wasn't needed anymore. It's done because Jesus is the final lamb that was slain. If you understand that moment in history, what should be formed in you is a sense of awe at the way that God works in history. Do you see that? When he makes a point, he makes a point. When he brings judgment, he brings judgment. For a group of people that just went through a handful of years of a global pandemic, we should take notice when signs are coming and when judgment is coming. Our eyes should be aware and not just say God has nothing to do with this, but we should say, what are you doing? Do you see that? That's what should be being formed in us as we understand what God's done from, I think, the preterist perspective. Okay, question number two. If what I'm saying is true, there's a bit of a troubling verse we gotta deal with, and that's verses two and three. Verses two and three speak about a resurrection. So the second question is, well, if it's the preterist perspective, what's with the resurrection spoken of in verses two and three? Let's read it together. Verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I just love that phrase. Can I just tell you, If ever there was motivation to be a disciple maker, that's your verse. If you make disciples of Christ, you will shine like the stars forever and ever. Come on, 100 days, let's go make some disciples of Jesus, okay? Anyone else? We got a clap up here in the front. Okay. That was weak. We're going to keep working on that, okay? All right. What does the resurrection have to do with what I just said, if it all took place in 70 AD. Because the last I checked, the final resurrection hasn't happened. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul admonishes, he gets mad at people who said the resurrection has already happened. He says, look, those people who say the final resurrection's already happened, they're heretics. Don't listen to them, okay? So I wanna walk very carefully, make sure I don't find myself in the heretic camp here. What is he speaking about? In New Testament Christianity, 
we oftentimes refer to the first and the second resurrection. This is good language for you to know, good language for you to fully wrap your mind around and understand. When we speak of the second resurrection, what we're talking about is that final resurrection. When Jesus returns, and those who have died will be raised to new life, receive a glorified body, and we will reign on earth. Heaven will be on this earth. It's not out in, this, in space somewhere. God will, Jesus will descend onto this earth, wipe away all sin, renew the earth, will receive glorified bodies, and we will live an everlasting life here on this earth. And that second resurrection, there is not only an eternal heaven, but there is an eternal hell. Those who have never placed their faith in Jesus or received the forgiveness that he offers will suffer in an eternal hell apart from Christ. And let me just tell you before I go any further that I want to appeal to you. If you're in this room and you're asking questions, what is this life about and what, what is going to happen to me after I die? There is a judgment. And Jesus spoke of heaven and hell more than any other person in the Bible. And the judgment has nothing to do whether you took your trash out on the right days and paid your taxes on the right days. The judgment has everything to do with whether or not your sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ or not. And you have to receive that by directly placing your faith in Jesus. And so I appeal to you before I go any further, that second resurrection will take place and every one of us will stand before that throne. But there's also a first resurrection. Let me read to you the New Testament, four different passages that speak of this first resurrection. Ephesians chapter two, verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead, God made us alive. Colossians chapter three, verses one to three. If then you have been raised with Christ, resurrected with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Died and resurrected to new life. Romans chapter six, verse four, speaking of of baptism. We were buried, that's death language, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We were buried and we've come to life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. That's resurrection language. Daniel may have echoes talking about the final resurrection, the second resurrection. Very well, that could be. But I also think he's directly speaking of the wonder of what it means to place your faith in the Messiah. He was looking forward at the day when the Messiah, Jesus, would finally come and finally do away with the sacrificial system. And I think what he's doing is he's using resurrection language to say, this is going to be what it's, this is what it's going to be like to be a Christian. You're going to come to life. You're going to experience resurrection. And then the New Testament authors were going back and saying, We've experienced resurrection. That's how good this is. And they were writing to the followers of Christ in all the places where persecution was happening. They were saying, don't, you, don't, don't take this for granted. Don't live your life as if you haven't been raised from the dead. Don't go about life and, and forget for, for a moment that you're not who you were. You're a new creation in Christ. Daniel's describing the first resurrection. I, I read this uh, this, this person this week, a guy named Dustin Messer. I think that's how you say his name. And he was describing an evangelistic encounter he had where he was talking to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus about uh, 
death and about judgment. And the, the person who didn't believe in Jesus said to him, do you honestly believe, pardon the R-rated bit to this right now, this is a, a conversation, do you honestly believe that weed and sex will keep me out of heaven? How would the Christian respond to that? Right? There's a non-believer asking a very honest question that non-believers think. Okay? Do you honestly believe that weed and sex will keep me out of heaven? The Christian responded this way. It's worse than that. Gardening and cooking can keep you out of heaven. Hmm. Well, that shakes up our paradigm a little bit, doesn't it? See, heaven is not about what you do or don't do. Heaven, the final judgment, is where the people who have already experienced the first resurrection will experience the final resurrection. Heaven is not the place where good people go and hell the place where bad people go. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is standard Christianity. You have to know this. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God and we are only forgiven by placing our faith in Jesus Christ of those sins. And so he goes on to say this. Hell is full of slothful drunks and philanderers, but it's also full of busy soccer moms and accountants. Who is in heaven? Sinners. Sinners who saw Jesus, attended to his presence, and cultivated that presence in their daily lives. <clears throat> Let me read you that first sentence again. Hell is full of slothful drunks and philanderers, but it's also full of busy soccer moms and accountants. <clears throat> That's the gospel really clear. And I think Daniel's getting at it. There is a resurrection that needs to happen in your life. And it happens when you place your faith in Jesus. Whether you're a busy soccer mom or you're on the other side of that equation and you're doing something that we just talked about there, what is needed is not to just get your life in order, but it's to recognize your need of a savior, to place your faith in Jesus and then experience death to life. So many people I know are going through life and they know, they just know, I actually hear the language. There's something missing in my life. I don't know what it is. It's, it's just not complete. And the answer is, well, you're dead. You haven't experienced the resurrection yet. The new life that's in Christ, it's full and it's complete and all life comes into color. We need, we need that resurrection. First resurrection, second resurrection. The only people that will experience the second one are those who already experienced the first resurrection. All right, let me close this out by answering this question. What is the hope of this passage? What's the hope of this passage? Daniel chapter 12, verse three. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. Many will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. In Daniel chapter 11 and 12, this language of wise being contrasted with wicked comes up a handful of times. And the call is obviously, look, you want to be a wise person. You don't want to be a wicked person. You want the, the wisdom side of this equation because it gets really good in the long run for those who are wisdom. What is wisdom? Many definitions of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says scripture. <clears throat> Uh, in the academy, Trevor Lovell gave a wonderful talk early on in the academy where he described wisdom. He gave a great picture of it. He described his children, uh, and he said, you know, there's two ways my kids play games. He said, sometimes they play narratively. And what's narrative playing? You know, he's got little girls like my little girls, and he said, sometimes my kids play narratively. That's where they make a story, and they'll bring their dolls out, and, you know, there's a little world, and there's a castle, and they're, 
They're, they're, they're pretending their dolls are going through the story, and they've made a world narratively for their toys to play in. That's playing narratively. He said, but then sometimes they play differently. Sometimes they don't play narratively. Sometimes they play incarnationally. What's incarnational play? <clears throat> incarnational play is where they enter into the make-believe world they've created. And the best example of this is when kids play hot lava on the ground. He said, it's not just that the doll has to get across, you know, a lava pit. The floor has become lava. And the kids have to jump from one cushion to the next cushion and not fall in the lava. And if they fall in the lava, what do they do? They're, they're laying on the ground, help, I'm falling, right? Kids know how to do this well. They're playing incarnationally. They've entered into the story that they've created. And they're living as if it's the real story. And they're enjoying it. Trevor goes on to say that in some ways, playing incarnationally is what Christians call wisdom. Wisdom is when you see the story that God has written, reality as it actually is. Not the reality that is the cover that's been pulled over our eyes, which is just what we see with our eyes, and we can't see everything because our eyes are sinful. But you look into reality, and you see the world as it actually is. And then you live as if it's all true. That's the wise life. And you step into a world all around you and you see scripture everywhere and you're living every moment as if this defines reality, as if the God of these pages is literally over every fabric and every molecule that's around you and you, you live as if it's real. That's the wise life. Daniel demonstrates to us that through prayer, if we go back and we think about Daniel, Daniel demonstrates to us that through prayer, you have authority to send angels to help in times of trouble. But you never enter into that space if you don't live incarnationally. If it's just a narrative off on the side, that's an interesting note about Christianity. Living incarnationally, living the wise life, is to call on those angels and send them to help. That's incarnational living. Jesus told us that he's going to return one day, and he warned us we better be prepared for the day he returns. He said that very often. He said, don't, he, he said I'm going to return like a thief in the night, and woe to those who are caught not doing their task. I, summarize, I, I poorly summarized Jesus there. But, but you never into, it, it just stays narrative if you go on with your life and pretend like Jesus is not about to return any moment. You're just living there. It's okay, we understand it. To enter incarnationally into it and to live as if Christ might return before the end of the day. And am I wait? Will he find me a faithful steward of what he's given me when he returns? Will he find me with everything he's given me, with the responsibilities he's given me, with the family he's given me, with the bride he's given me, with the job he's given me, with the finances he's given me? Will he find me and say, I entrusted to those to you and you did not waste a second? You did well. And will he find me sleeping on the job in all those areas? It's one thing to say it narratively. It's another to live it incarnationally. Daniel challenges us to live it incarnationally. We know that there's a heaven. There is a hell. And Jesus speaks about hell more than any other person in all of scripture. It's one thing to know that narratively. It's another to plead with those in your life who don't know the Lord. And live this incarnationally. See, a hundred days... This cork board, it's just a keep ourselves busy announcement. If we don't live it incarnationally, 
Daniel is a wake-up call to sleepy Christians. Matthew chapter 13, verse 16 to 17 says, but blessed are your eyes, speaking to those who are New Testament disciples. Jesus says, blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears hear, and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is looking back at Daniel and saying, I know Daniel, he longed to see the day you are living in right now. Church, the Holy Spirit has come. He's given gifts. He's given everything we'll ever need. He's given us community. He's tied us together as a family. Jesus has paid your debt on the cross. It's better than you could ever believe. Live it incarnationally. Step into the responsibility that Daniel said would be ours when the Messiah had come. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for Daniel. Thank you so much for the sweetness of being a follower of Christ, for living in the days of the Messiah. What a remarkable reality. Don't let us take it for granted. Whatever we do, Lord, take away this knack we have for just taking it for granted. We don't want to do that. Forgive us when we do. Make it come alive. I I pray right now for any sleepy Christian in this room anyone who's not living incarnationally, God, that you would make us live incarnationally, that it would be a joy, not a guilt, not a burden, but reality, life to the full, living on mission for Christ our King. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.